You misunderstood. I wasn't asking for the time. I was just saying there was a time. There was a time? Mm-hmm. Take Brown Sugar back there, for example. She's pretty f***ing foxy, right? She's 70. If she's a dick, there was a time. Hello and welcome. Welcome and hello. This is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a show where we talk about movies, and specifically, we talk about a movie at least one of us has never seen before. I'm your host, Travis, a.k.a. TV's Travis. This is episode number 221, and our movie this week was 2006's Lucky Number Slevin. Here to talk with me about it, it was his idea to watch this, from the Jester's Court podcast, it's Mike. Mike, how you doing? I am good, man, and thank you for having me. Absolutely. So you brought this movie to me. Um, so I want to know your history with Lucky Number Slevin. I, it's just one of those great, fun movies. And you don't see them like this anymore. You just fun, silly movies. Granted, this one tries to be a little clever, more clever than it is, but it's still fun. And I'm going to, you know, we're going to talk about it for sure. But everything you hear bad about, it's right. It's overstylized. It's the plots. Eh, but it's just fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. So um, real quick, spoiler alert, if you don't want to be spoiled on a movie that does have a, a quote twist in it, uh, watch the movie first, then come back and hang out with us. It's available on sources like Tubi.tv for free. You don't even need an account. You can just watch it. Um, it's worth it. But we're going to spoil the hell out of the movie. So just be ready for yes. that. Um, so I remember this movie coming out. I remember 2006 seeing trailers for it. And I don't think it didn't last very long in the theater. Um, and I'm way up Northern Michigan. We don't get stuff sometimes like, or if we do, it won't last for very long before they just kick it out of theaters and bring the next big blockbuster in. And for whatever reason in 06, I just didn't get to it. And I was going to a lot of movies at this point, especially, um, this was kind of in the height of the cable access sketch show that I was working on with a bunch of friends of mine. There were four of us that lived in a house together. We would road trip to the IMAX theater because it was a hundred miles away. Um, we were doing a lot of movies in town. My one roommate was a projectionist at the local multiplex. So we went to movies a lot, but for some reason this one I missed and then I just never got around to it. And it was that movie that was always, I'd have friends tell me I need to watch it. I'd think, you know, I, I should see that movie sometime and then I'd forget about it and it'd be like two years. And then I'd think about it or it'd pop up somewhere Somehow, and then same thing. It would just be that cycle for the last, whatever, you know, almost 20 Much years like since Josh this movie Hardest came out. Career. Kind of, which we're, I, I kind of want to get to a little bit, but it was one, of, it was just one of those. And I had like, I had a real good friend of mine that constantly would bring up the movie. Like anytime for, for a stretch of about three years, he was just like, you got to watch Lucky Number Seven. And I never did. And so when you mentioned it, I jumped on it. I thought that was perfect. This is a perfect excuse to finally sit down and watch this damn movie. And, uh, I had a good time with it. It's a fun movie. You you nailed it with yes. it's a fun movie. It is so the most recent thing that I would equate this to is Bullet Train. Yeah. Um no, no, that's good. Bu Bullet Train is this type of movie. Smoke and Aces is this type of movie. Um it wants to be uh and and a lot of these were influenced by pulp fiction. Um got kind of 
wasn't the first of this type of movie, but it definitely influenced a ton of them. And so did the usual suspects right in that same time. I feel a lot of Guy Ritchie in this too. I think he must be a fan. Oh yeah. Yep. There's Guy Ritchie in there. And, uh, you know, you can also see bits and pieces of things like Ocean's Eleven, Confidence. There's a little bit of that type of movie. And it, what it is, is it's these movies that have either the, the central part of it is either some form of um, revenge or con that somebody is running. Um, and the movie, like the knocks on this movie, because I went back and I looked at some of the critics reviews at the time it came out because it didn't review very well, which is, I think, why it didn't do well in the box office. Um, this is kind of your your classic definition of sort of cult classic, right? It was a movie that didn't do well, got a bit of a following on home video, and then later on would you know evolve into streaming, and people enjoyed it, but it just wasn't well received. And it's it's a movie that not a lot of people have seen. A lot of people will forget about it. It's got a weird title, which doesn't help it. Like Lucky Number Slevin is strange to say. It sounds like you're you've had too much to drink. Um, I think in, was it, did I read it was in Australia? It was called the wrong man or something. Uh, which, uh, like almost every country has a different name. Cause apparently it didn't translate. Well, I, I yeah, saw at least and, three different names and like the wrong man, not, not a great title, but it's sort of a little more indicative of what the movie is. Um, because marketing is a big thing, right? Marketing is a huge part of movies. If you don't hook somebody with the marketing on a movie, and I'm not talking movie buffs. I'm not talking people like you or I or, or people who have a movie podcast or just really cinephiles, but general public, you know, my dad, my, uh, my brother-in-law, um, you know, some friends of mine that I got that like, those are the types where marketing is important because if your title is weird and doesn't make any sense, or your trailer doesn't give you a good idea of sort of what you're getting into, then people yeah. are just going to pass on it. And I think that that hurt this because this is a movie much like a lot of those others that we've mentioned, you have to see to really appreciate. You can't, it's a tough one to market. Um, Smoke and Aces is the one that, that first comes to mind for me because when I saw bullet train, that was the movie it reminded me the most of in that the marketing for Smoke and Aces is like, yes, we've got a bunch of assassins going to uh, this hotel to go after one guy, but that's, only half the movie and but you can't give away the rest of it or you just give away the goose right and that's the problem when you have reveals is mm -hmm. yeah big it, reveals it, it, like that it, it's, it's hard <laughs> though yeah, this i mean one, that, i mean if you think about it lucky number 11 sounds like a racehorse so at some point you probably should put that together <laughs> yeah and i think that that could have been marketed a little bit better because i watched a few of the trailers and then from what i remember and it it does they needed to not go so hard on the, like the he's the wrong guy in the wrong place at the wrong time type of thing and give you more of sort of the give less plot and more just like the slick look and feel of the movie. And that's going to draw people in because in the end, it's a very simple plot. Yeah. Um, it, it's a complex story centered around a very simple plot of just somebody wanting revenge on their family getting killed. That's all it is. He goes about it in a complex way and it play, It doesn't tell the story linearly, which is the other hard part to it too. It's kind of, I know people that have trouble with a nonlinear storytelling because they get lost. They're not, 
fully paying attention or they can't quite follow what's going on. And suddenly, uh, you know, they're asking the questions when they could be getting all those answers. The movie is telling them everything, but I know people that, that can't just can't wrap their brain around that. And so it's tough. And this being nonlinear definitely doesn't help. Um, but it's very well done. And I think the stylization of it, I think the look of everything um, works. I think that's actually what made it work for me more because I've seen Guy Ritchie uh, movies. I've seen, you know, I named a bunch of movies that are like this. And even um, there's even elements of like payback in here with Mel Gibson. Yeah. Oh God, Um, I love payback. And so this sort of combines a little bit of all of those. And it's like, there's some payback in there with some, with some smoking aces and some Guy Ritchie, uh, slickness and like the lingo that's getting used. And then the movie is the other thing I appreciate when a movie can literally tell you exactly what's going to happen and still make you guess and try to figure out what's, what's going on because it really does that. Like the first scene with Bruce Willis in this movie, which by the way, I had a note down here and, uh, it's Bruce Willis is really good in this movie. Um, Oh, this is, this is like the perfect Bruce Willis role. Like, like, He's done a few times, but this, I mean, this is the epitome. This is Bruce Willis being Bruce Willis and it's great. Yeah. And when he, it's a, it really bums me out the way that aphasia robbed him of, of a lot of what could have been really good years in movies. And he, and, and he ended up because of like a combination of that and other things, taking a lot of roles in films that either he wasn't invested in or, you know, he couldn't get invested in, in the way that he would have wanted to. And so his perform some of his performances aren't great, especially as he, in the later years, because when he's on, he is so good. And like, this is the example of that. He doesn't, he doesn't have to do too much. He's not uh, on screen all of the time, but when he's on screen, he's compelling. And like, there's a couple of moments in that first scene, which I love how he just appears in the wheelchair next to the guy in the uh, in the airport and he's just very soft-spoken and starts telling him a story and there's little moments there's little winks and, and smirks and stuff and i'm just like this this is a guy that really he cares about this particularly that scene you can tell oh, he's yeah. putting in the effort and it was it was so good um, and it's funny you use that for the um the intro because i had the very first note i wrote there was a time <laughs> and i love this dialogue like it's cheesy dialogue but it's great i love it it's so good because when you look at, uh, you know, Guy Ritchie films, Tarantino films, they have a specific style of dialogue that's being spoken. Tarantino writes dialogue that you can pick out Tarantino dialogue in a lineup. Like as soon as you hear it, you're like, that's either that is Tarantino or that's somebody who worshiped at the altar of Tarantino. (laughs) Um, and Guy Ritchie is very similar in his films. There's a lot of that same very snappy dialogue, um, Steven Soderbergh does that really well, um, in a lot of his movies. That's why the, the oceans 11, uh, oceans trilogy kind of reminded me of this where again, you're, you're running a con. There's a lot of snappy dialogue between people. There's a lot of lingo being used too. Um, but what I loved is like that opening scene with Bruce Willis, he tells you exactly what's going to happen. It's a Kansas city shuffle. Mm-hmm. You're going to make everybody go look right. And then you're going to go left. And that's what the movie is. The whole movie is a Kansas city shuffle, but there's like layers of them. There's, there's shuffles going on inside of shuffles. It's really kind of, kind of clever in that way. Um, 
And, uh, and I just, I like when a movie can do that. When a movie can show up and just be like, all right, son, here's what's going to happen. And now we're going to do that. And you still at, at least one point in this movie, you're going to be like, Oh, I didn't see that coming like that. You know yeah, what I mean? And even, even the reveal, I want to say about it. I, I know I picked it up the first time I watched it before the movie told you, but it still was about halfway through the movie before you really mm-hmm. start going, hang on. <laughs> and, and, you know, again, like you said, like they point, they tell you it's going to be like, it's going to be a misdirection. And you still like at that halfway point or whatever it happens to happen to you, you're like, wait a second. They got me. Oh, and part of that and is Josh Hartnett plays the that the um the silly character so well the the persona he, he was does. doing you know that is that is his, you know, we're talking about Bruce Willis and his element that's Josh Hartnett in his element the squinty can we eye talk about, kind of yeah sarcastic can, can we just talk about him for a second because he's really good in this he is um he's just he's hitting on all cylinders he's playing that character perfectly and it's kind of a bummer that he didn't have a career with and i understand that's sort of that's a type and he maybe he didn't want to get typecast into that i'm not sure um but it feels like this was around the time where hartnett's just sort of stopped showing up in large movies yes was like right after this and sin city and and i remember reading that he stepped back for some charity he was doing i know was that was that what it was? I can't. I couldn't remember what the reasoning was, but I knew at least some of it was like his own. He decided to do that. I I think um, it's a shame because he was great coming up in the early two thousands. Like, I like him. I I wish we had seen more of him. I'm with you. And if yeah, you're and right, this movie is he's spot on. Even when you do the yeah. transition to more serious stuff, which he doesn't always do well in this movie, he had it. Oh yeah. Oh oh yeah. That final scene with him and. Well, I, I want to hold off on that because yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have some specific thoughts about that particular scene. But like, I mean, he's still, you know, he's working up through today. He did an episode of Black Mirror um, this year. Um, so, but he just, he went through this stretch where we just sort of didn't see him in anything big. I think he was still doing some acting, but it was a lot of smaller, uh, smaller productions. And I don't know if there was, because um, like, I liked him in 30 Days a Night. I thought he was great in that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had done Sin City and his character in Sin City was, you know, only on screen for, for a short period of time, but like it fit him, uh, fairly well. I just, I think after like, um, was it, uh, Pearl Harbor and then, you know, doing 40 days and 40 nights and Hollywood homicide. And I think he kind of got soured from like big studio type movies. He was in Hollywood homicide. Completely, yeah. I completely forgot that movie existed. <laughs> <laughs> so I think like, I think that's part of it, but he's just, he's good in this and look credit to him for spending the first 20 minutes of the movie in a towel. Like, Which had to, had to account for probably a, what a third of the filming <laughs> that mm-hmm. he was at work every day in a towel. Yeah. And that's not easy to do. Like, that's tough to pull off. I did like the trivia I read. And again, IMDb trivia, take it with a grain of salt. But that uh, Lucy Liu's reaction when she runs back in the first time and he's got the towel open and her reaction was genuine because he did flash her. He just didn't like didn't say anything and just kind of surprised her with that. Um, I will say I saw that from other sources. Okay. Um, when I looked up trivia as well. So 
but it it sounds still, like still could be it still could be fake but it it you know it's a little more yeah. closer now but it, it sounds like it was a fun movie to work on where like that wouldn't be I mean that that can be problematic to do a prank like that and it's probably not something that somebody would pull today um because you don't know how somebody's going to react but it sounds like Lucy Liu's talked glowingly about this in in interviews I saw um about making this movie so it sounds like that was just sort of the the fun they were having on set but like here he is he's just in the towel for a third of the movie almost it's it's crazy and but he and he's still doing he's still acting during all of that and he's pulling everything off like he's got this kind of he was the perfect age to pull off the kind of aw shucks just a little bit of that and like you know he doesn't like he's not quite fully grasping everything that's going on around him the character isn't and Hartnett I think just just gave that impression very very well and, and that's that's the role I like he's kind of made for that role like again Bruce Willis was being Bruce Willis that's Josh Hartnett in his strongest mm-hmm. he's playing that character yeah I really liked him um, I will say that the kid in the opening of the telling the story while I didn't know at the time that he was going to be Slevin um I kind of had that feeling because it just felt like, oh, we're doing an awful lot of flashback to this story of this kid and his dad. Like the Why timing matches up. up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, my note was if this kid is the young version of Josh Hartnett's character, they cast him perfectly because that kid looked like a young Josh Hartnett. Like he really gave me that feel. And so I was like, all right, cool. Um, I'm, I'm assuming that's what it is. And sure enough, you know, as the movie started unfolding, I'm like, yeah, they definitely were going that route. Um, also, his dad, Max, the character of Max in this. Um, I'm going to give you two names, and you tell me if you think the same thing I do, that this that, that guy in this movie looks like a mashup of Joshua Jackson and Ray Liotta. <laughs> yes, and now <laughs> I will never be able to unsee that. <laughs> it's like if those two had a baby, he played Max in this movie. Um and I couldn't, I just, I could not stop thinking that, that whole opening scene until, you know, he's getting tortured and then he looked a little less, but yes, they turned his face into burger at that point. Um, but, uh, no, Hartnett, Hartnett's great. And then you get Ben Kingsley and, uh, Morgan Freeman as your the, um, the rabbi and the boss. Um, I did find it funny, uh, reading the trivia that, um, cause he was credited as Sir Ben Kingsley in the movie. And apparently that's a no-no. Like you don't really it, it do is, that. Yes, I, <laughs> and, and I saw the same trivia, and I remember when it happened too. Like it was, there was a yeah. lot of press about it. And and I just I like that it was a studio executive that like didn't understand that, and that was their slip up. Um, but uh, but they're I mean, look, Ben Kingsley and Morgan Freeman. You put them in a movie, they're going to be good. Doesn't matter. Um, Kingsley is a little hammier in his role as the rabbi. And his accent comes and goes <laughs> like it's there, but it's not. Um, I've got some audio clips I'll play later and you'll kind of hear that. But uh, but I loved him anyway. I didn't I didn't care. Like he was just awesome throughout the whole and, movie. And let's be fair. There was plenty of ham to go around. Um, Freeman was was chewing scenery, too. It's Ooh. great. But oh, yeah. <laughs> well, so Morgan Freeman chews scenery in such a different way. Like Ben Kingsley is going over the top and he's he's really in putting a lot of inflection in his voice and he's doing a lot of like 
I would equate it to something like if Jim Carrey were in the movie and overacting and Morgan Freeman's chewing scenery, but he's kind of, he's like laying back in a chaise lounge, having somebody feed him the scenery as he's chewing it up. You know, he's, he's just, cause like Morgan Freeman's just cool. And he always sounds calm and under control. Um, which is why I love again, in that last scene where he's just lost, uh, we'll get in when we talk yes. about that, I, I'll come back to it. But like, those two as your crime bosses, I thought was was great. Did you have a kind of a favorite between the two? Uh, you know, probably had. I, I want to say Morgan Freeman because I just love Morgan Freeman. But really, though, I think Kingsley, because he had the great line. He had the, he to me he had the, the one of the best lines in the movie with, when he was talking and he's like, "We were both supposed to be in charge, but um, you know, there's two people in the room. They're going to look at one of us, and they were looking mm-hmm. at you, and that was a great moment for like I thought that was perfect." So I'm with you in that I love Morgan Freeman. I want to say Morgan Freeman all the time, but they gave the lines to Ben Kingsley. Like Freeman's got the great one of, I need you to make it look like it ain't what it, it ain't what it is or whatever. How I, and I captured that. Uh, but like, he's got a line like that. He's got that great, great scene over the chess table um, that I yes, absolutely yes. loved. But man, the lines they gave the rabbi, the the one you said, there's two people in the room, they're going to be looking at one, and it wasn't me, it was you. He also had, when he first wakes up, and he's like, I have, I've been in this room before, and it's the same, but it's different. Like, being in your own car and somebody else is driving. And I thought, oh, that's so, because that's true. Like, you sit in your own car, yes. but in the passenger seat, it's not the same thing. <laughs> it's so different, but it's the same thing. And I love that line too. And he had the little throwaway after that too. Like, of course, it's been 20 years since I drove a car. <laughs> right. <laughs> I thought that was nice. Which, little... which is a cool, like, I love movies that do a little bit of world building and, and are that hyper reality that it's our world, but it's not the real world. Right. Um, Tarantino's films are like that where, Tarantino's films exist in this universe that is exactly like ours, has a lot of the same pop culture that we do, but there's just something not quite right about it. Like people don't quite behave the way you would. Um, John Wick series is a prime example of this. Like it's New York City. They have all of the same things, but there's something, it's just like, it's this stylized version of our universe where people are paying for stuff with gold coins and the, the Flatiron building is a hotel called the continental and all that kind of stuff. And this one has that same thing where it's our world, it's our New York, but you got these two crime bosses who literally live across the street from each other are in a feud and haven't left their buildings in 20 years for fear Talking of getting killed the by the other one. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about the schmoo. Yes. Yes, exactly. So it's like, I just love stuff like that. Like you can, you can legitimately buy that the rabbi hasn't left that building in 20 years. And he's, they just stand there drinking tea, staring at each other from across the street every day. Like I one one of these days I'm going to kill you. And, uh, and, and that to me is hilarious. And I kind of would love to just like play in that sandbox more and hear more stories from this world of like things that have gone on. Um, and Lucy Lou and Hart both said they'd be game for a sequel. I, I'm not sure how you would go, what you would go with, but I, I would, I would, if you show me lucky number seven part two, I'd be first in line. Oh, I would jump at that in a, in a heartbeat because there, again, there's a character in, in Lucy Lou's Lindsay that a normal person living in our world doesn't react that way. 
And I spent almost the entirety of the movie waiting for the shoe to drop with her and who she was and how she was involved. So, you know, it was one of those things where um, I just kept waiting for that. Go ahead. Sorry, I realized my mic was muted. I, I was going to say, I was going to say, um, Lucy Lou, and, and the reason you're thinking that is because that's usual the characters she plays, especially in this time mm -hmm. frame where those tough, but she is adorable in this. I love her oh. in this. She is absolutely like, you just want to just want to stick her in a pocket and carry her home. Like she's just adorable, but it was, it's also the trope, right? It's a trope to have that character who gets themselves involved is very, eager to be involved in whatever this thing is that's going on. And then you drop the facade and suddenly they're an assassin or they're working for this person or whatever. And they've been playing you the whole time. It's that thing that happens in these types of movies. So I kept waiting for that to happen and then it didn't. And that was one of the things that this movie did that surprised me. Like a lot of it, they laid out, they kind of showed you all the cards and there were twists, but they weren't like, Oh my, you know, they weren't, who is Kaiser Soze twist of just like, you, had, you didn't see that coming at all. Her though, her character arc and the way that things went with her. And then when um, Bruce Willis shows up at the morgue and just staring at her, pulls out the gun, shoots her. I was like, I didn't see that coming. And in fact, my note was like, they had to kill her. I liked her. I liked her character. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. And so then she pops up at the end and that was another one of those tropes and I loved it. Like it worked out. Well, and there is a version of that script where she stayed dead and they decided that it was too dark. I'm glad that they, they didn't go that route and it gives another, it gives an extra something fun to put in at the end. Um, while also it, it is a little bit unbelievable in that um, you would think based on the history that Slevin and um, Mr. Goodcat had together, that he would have known the guy would have understood, but it does give us a, a really great reveal of her at the end. And then we get to see how that all went down. And I liked that. So, but you're right. I, she's just, she's very likable in this. She's very just bubbly and fun and she just wants to get involved. And I love how she's immediately like going Columbo and doing, you know, using star 69 on the phone. Um, it just, all of that was, was great. So, yeah, Lucy Lou's a lot of fun. She, in this her Columbo lines that weren't real Columbo lines. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, which is fine. I don't care. I mean, there's a lot of that in this. Like, you can nitpick away the baseball stuff, too, in the beginning, uh, that the players weren't – they were real player names. They were just the wrong era. Um, but, uh, yeah, I love that where she's like, yeah, Columbo says – and uh, and none of that's ever been said by Columbo. Um, but I love even, like, the second scene we see her in, she just – comes into the apartment, hops up on the counter, starts making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like, like it's nothing. Yeah. And, uh, they have their, their wonderful little dinner date, uh, which was a lot of fun. Um, and then you find out during the dinner date that he is actually like going to do the hit. Um, because <laughs> what, what a great, what a great way to play both has against the middle here. He is. And, yeah. and for the movie to make us feel like he doesn't know what's going on, but kind of in the back of your head, you're like, nah, he's got to know. Because he gave up trying to tell the boss, Morgan Freeman, that he wasn't Nick. Mm -hmm. Like, he just kind of gave up on that. And that's sort of, 
that's again that's one of those ways where the movie's kind of giving itself away a little bit and i like that because it's subtle it's subtly done there's like lingo that he uses um that gives away that like he knows more about this kind of world and the sort of stuff that he's doing when he's when they uh when he and lucy lou are leaving dinner and he says yeah i think i picked up a pigtail i was alive was just thinking that same line yeah that was one where i'm like okay yeah he knows more than he's letting on like he's not completely a rube um and that you know i love that plus the movie has this way of making him into an unreliable narrator in that it's it's not fully from his point of view but when we get stuff that is his point of view like when he first meets uh lindsay and she's asking him what go what was going on he's telling her about you know bad things happen in threes and we go to a flashback so here's here's where uh this is some good filmmaking is the movie opened up with bruce willis telling the story of max and the horse race and it's all through flashback and that flashback is all effectively just normally shot cinematography like the rest of the movie is they did give it a little bit of that like slight glow that you see in 70s movies that sort of little bit of fuzziness with the way that the film Mm -hmm. was and the lighting was and everything like that and they sort of it looked like they maybe boosted like the reds a little bit so it gave it just ever so slightly that feel of the late 70s but it looked like the normal movie but then when josh hartnett starts talking and he starts and slevin starts telling his story his flashback is like a third the frame rate right it's very low frame rate a little bit choppy and everything is desaturated so it's very different flashback stylistically from the opening and then later on we get more flashbacks of people talking about stuff that's happened previously that don't look like Hartnett's. They don't look like Slevin's stories. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of that way of being like, yeah, no, what this isn't, this didn't really happen. This is somebody like making it up or telling it from their own memory, but it's not really events that, that took place. And that's the kind yeah, of thing I, that you would catch on either analysis or on a second watch through that I just think is, you know, genius in a lot of ways. The cinematography is great. Paul, Mc, I'm not going to say, I'm a butcher's last name, McEugan, McEugan. I think it's McGugan. He's doesn't have, hasn't done a lot of movies, but he's one of the main directors on the Sherlock show mm-hmm. from BBC. Yes. I, I saw love. That. I, I like him. I like his. I like him a lot. Um, I wish he'd done more movies, but uh, yeah, the cinematography is great. Um, the direction, like the sound, is great. Like it, it, he did, he did well on this for sure. Oh, absolutely. It's either McGugan, McGigan, McGigan. I'm not sure exactly. And unfortunately, I didn't have time to look it up ahead of time. Um, but he did this. He did Wicker Park the year bef- a couple of years before this with Josh Hartnett, uh, which I haven't seen, but um, I've heard is, you know, not terrible. Um, kind of a thriller mystery type movie. Um, you know, but yeah, the um, Dracula, he did an episode of Dracula. Uh, series Luke Cage. He directed the first couple episodes of that uh, in season one, and Sherlock. When and I saw that, and I was like, oh, "Okay, I get a little Sherlock feel in the way some of the stuff was shot." And the he camera has a very, especially, yeah, yeah. And he has a very good eye for shot composition and set, and works well with a set decorator to really give sets that add to that feel I was talking about. That sort of hyper real thing, where like the wallpaper and all of these backgrounds there's moments where it feels like a Wes Anderson film 
in a way, like some of those wallpapers. And mm-hmm. you know, there was like a shot of the phone. And I'm like, that looks like it was just lifted right off of a Wes Anderson movie. You know, the like yes. the hallways <laughs> with the stripe patterns and all this kind of stuff. Here's what I think it does, though. And, and, and I think this is kind of cool is it never you never feel comfortable you never feel right ever something always feels like it's just slightly off it would be sort of like doing a lot of dutch angles or throwing those in every once in a while to make you feel disoriented it's like that but instead of changing the camera angle they're changing the background and what your eyes are seeing and so you just never fully kind of wrap your head around exactly what you're seeing is kind of how it felt to me yeah no i am with you on that and it kind of you appreciate it more the second time you watch it because the first time you watch it i'm like this wallpaper is taking me out of it like i hate this wall. why <laughs> why and then then you're right you, you watch you watch it again and it's like okay no i i feel what you're doing there and that's that's a very real thing you were doing like on purpose yeah like the best example of it i think is and it, it's funny that it comes in a slevin um story so it's something that never even happened is when he's telling the story of going to his girlfriend's apartment, um, which is the trope of the guy walking in and finding his girlfriend cheating on him type thing. What I like is that the movie uses that trope, but it's not really using that trope. So it's sort of subverting it just a touch because that never, that event didn't happen. Technically it never happened. Yeah. Um, Cause that trope is very tired. Um, and I feel like it's just a terrible inciting event. So to, to basically thumb your nose at that trope by using it as a fake Uh, I kind of like, but what's cool about it is when he first walks into her apartment, it looks so weird, right? Cause it's got that striped wallpaper on like all the walls and the columns and everything. But then as he walks down the hallway, it goes from perfect stripes to a little bit off kilter to when he walks into the room and he's standing in the doorway, the wallpaper is still black and white, but it's even more lines and chaotic. So it's like, as things were unraveling for this character, the whole background goes from straight to just nuts. And again, that's one of those things where it's like, you know, going back and watching that scene again, you're like, that's really cool because it's just, it, it is a subconscious thing. You don't realize it when you're watching it that first time, but it kind of, it adds to the scene a little bit. Definitely. Like, I don't, I don't feel as though that scene. Oh, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I was just gonna say another great line of that, that scene too, is that you do tripped and I fell or she fell. Yeah. More clips. That was. And that was another fun thing is they um, Slevin as a character says that he has and uh, oh how did he what was the term he used for it because um, it sounds like anorexia but it was like at a at atorexia yeah yeah and you're and right, anorexia. yeah because at first when he said it the way he said the T it sounded like a D which gave a little bit of an N sound I'm like anorexia but he's eating no it's it was atorexia. And it's this, like, he never gets stressed out. He never gets overwhelmed. And that's a great kind of, uh, like, I don't want to call it a fake disorder, but his character doesn't actually have that. It's just that his character, Slevin, is ahead of the curve on everybody because he's playing Mm -hmm. chess on them all. But it's a great way to explain that away. He doesn't have to be worried about what's going on because he's four or five, six steps ahead of everyone. So he's just when in calm. reality, it's it's definitely a cover because he's been preoccupied with this revenge for you know his entire life. Yes, exactly. Um, so it's it that, that again is like that same sort of 
it's just that that cleverness that the movie had in the script and i think that the script i think overall the script is actually pretty damn good um i think it's very it's very clever it's not i never felt like it tried to be too smart for its own good because it was very sort of tongue-in-cheek kind of winking at you while it was doing it um which is i think why it gets away with the kinds of things that they do because they Again, there's a there's a thing with um, the boss where you they have a shot showing his ring while they're playing chess, and you saw that ring earlier, but you didn't realize that you saw it, and so to have that like close up on the ring just feels like kind of a cool stylized moment. It wasn't until later on that I realized they already showed us that mm-hmm. type of thing. Like, I think that's 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 kind of fun. Or um, again, the Lucy Liu character in general is being set up a certain way and I'm waiting the whole time for something to happen. And then when something does finally happen, it wasn't the thing I thought it was very, her character and what happened to her was a total Kansas city shuffle. Um, Cause they had me looking one way and then they went over here and did something else. And I just wasn't prepared for it. And like the reveal of uh, Mr. Good cat and Slevin working together, another good one of those you sort of could see it coming but at the same time it's still a little bit surprising because they keep setting you up for something different so it's just a series of look over here look over here and now this is going to happen behind you and i like that i like that kind of stuff because to me that is a movie that uh isn't insulting your intelligence and it's it's giving you it's it's having fun with you and it's playing with expectations as an audience. No, almost one hundred percent agree. I I think it does try to be a little smarter than it should be, but I say that whilst also saying I enjoy it despite that. So, I, I would say ninety percent agreement there. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, if you think about it, any of this type of movie wants to be looked at as smarter than it is, whether it's and sometimes that is done in a manner like the usual suspects where the humor is just kind of there's there's levity and humor in there, but it sort of chuckles. And it's a little bit of, hey, yeah, OK, that's that's cute type of thing. But for the most part, it's played very seriously, very earnestly. Then you get Tarantino who will do that same kind of thing or Guy Ritchie who will do that same kind of thing. But they are very open with what they're doing. They're not trying to necessarily like fool you. They're just trying to tell a, uh, a story and hopefully you're following along. Um, uh, Shane Black does that a lot too. Um, Cause this has a little, there's a little kiss, kiss, bang, bang feel to this movie as well. Um, there is. I think, it, I think it fits the, 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 that movie fits into this sort of same umbrella. Um, and I do think that, well, you're probably not wrong. And like the movie wants to be, looked at as the script wants to be looked at as smarter than it maybe is. I do think that this movie's doing that with a wink and a nod. Like, hey, aren't we clever? Huh? Huh? You know, type of thing as opposed to a try hard version of that. Um and and we all like, agreed that it came out right. I mean, it, mm-hmm. whatever, you know, it, it it came out right. It came out good. Well, they had a great mix of again, simple plot complex story and characters the characters are where the complexity comes in because some of them are just bad guys doing crime stuff of whatever nature it is bookies and and whatnot but then you've got the complex characters mixed in there and that's 
that's a good mixture while it's basically just this guy wants revenge and we're slowly unraveling what that is. But you mix that with very uh, slick dialogue, excellent performances from everybody. Like everybody's invested. There's nobody phoning it in in this. No, um, the cast which, is amazing. Stanley Tucci. Can we talk about Stanley Tucci for a minute? Like I didn't see his coming the first time. Everyone oh, else I, before I, the movie revealed it, I was like, okay, this is the, you know, you did, I did not see Tucci's coming until that until that conversation with the guy as it was happening. Yeah, and so he, and I was like, oh god, that's he was in it. <laughs> so so I had I had a note as I'm going along and I can kind of tell when I hit certain points in this movie because um I had and this movie is full of actors that I just like. Um, maybe I just like too many actors. I don't know. My list of like, no, hey, this that is guy, or that girl. Cast. But like, Hartnett, and then you know who shows up working for the boss? Michael T. Williamson in a reverse Bubba, because he's instead <laughs> of having the giant lower lip, he's got just the biggest, most ridiculous fake teeth I have ever seen. Oh, and what was his like, character name? Slow, slow, slow. Like they make the caps that Matt Dillon had in something about Mary look like like he had no dental work done. Like these teeth were just gigantic, and I love that. Um, and uh, Dorian Missick, who's Elvis, with slow again, he's just great. Um, and uh, but then then you get to and I had a note here, and I, all I had was the Tooch in a bunch of exclamation points because it's Stanley Tucci, and like immediately the movie went up a level for me. It just got better because Stanley Tucci's face was on screen and the whole movie. And again, I'm with you. Didn't see that coming at all. And then he gets the phone call and he's sitting in his car. And at first that scene is playing out. And also uh, a great bit of casting there with Robert Forrester just showing up. Yes. Like that was awesome. Um, Cause I didn't expect that. And yet again, another guy, you know, another actor, I see him and I'm just like, cool. I love Robert Forrester. But that scene to me, when it started, I felt like we were getting the end of the usual suspects, right? Where they're revealing that they figured out who it is, but too late. Right. And it's all going along. And then when Josh Hartnett, when he's, when he, when uh, you hear Forrester say like, it's too bad the kid's gone cold and he sits up in the back seat, and I was like, oh no. What is what is about to happen here? And you get the reveal that Tucci, that his character was the gunman. And that's when it kicks in. They they showed us that earlier. Like they gave that away. They they did. They really did with that line in the morgue where he's like, I, I used to sign my paycheck over to this guy. Yeah. Like you oh. should have you should have put it together, but you didn't. I didn't. You didn't, because you right, because you have no reason to at that point. At that point you don't. And that that is a thing that storytelling can do that when it's done right. And when it's earned like that, you're just like, that's a, that's a brilliant move because here it is. They tell you that this guy, this police officer is not, and, and some of his actions kind of give you that feeling like when he punches him in the car and they, you know, they pick him up and then they like toss him out of a moving car. Um, you know, going like five miles an hour, but still, but it, but you can but kind of that, explain that away as like, it's just tough cop work, right? These are just New York cops being New York cops. Especially in this version of our universe that they, they mm-hmm. exist in, where it's a little more old-timey. So even though it's 2006, yeah. like, okay, no, this is... You could write it off. You're absolutely right. But to have that combined with the line of like, oh, yeah, you know, 20 years ago, he was my bookie. 
you know, and I was signing my paychecks over to him. And it's that having that realization as that scene unfolded and you're like, Oh crap, that's well done. Like you just want to stand up and give, give a nice slow clap to the movie. Like, well done. You know, you, you earned, here's a cookie. You earned it. Um, and I love that. Like that to me is just fun stuff. So that was not something I saw coming at all. Um, that was like the real big whoa moment for me. Um, it was Lucy Lou getting shot and then Stanley Tucci, which by the way, it's brutal because <laughs> they show like the shot from in from outside the car and they have him covered up just right in the frame with like a reflection or something, but he mm-hmm. gets shot and then you get the reaction of the phone and the blood hitting the pavement. Like, and then this the movie, other cop still talking through the yeah, phone. Yeah. This movie didn't pull punches, uh, especially at the end. It got, uh, it got brutal. Um, this, okay. We're going to talk about it now. And that's the, the scene of the, like the reveal reveal, the movie finally laying all its cards out on the table, which is Hartnett shows up with the briefcase to the rabbi. He says, everything I owe you is in here sets it down on the desk and then he pulls the blackjack out and he's holding it behind his, his back and he waits until the rabbi's looking down cracks him over the back of the head right with the empty briefcase and whatnot and rabbi wakes up in the boss's room tied to to the chair which by the way duct taped him to the chair and like duct tape him from wrist to elbow those hands aren't moving uh which is pretty cool but he wakes up he has that wonderful speech um, we referenced a little bit earlier with like the driving, you know, being in your car. Um, and then you, the, the part that you mentioned about, you know, everybody being in the room, looking at each other, looking at there, everyone's looking at uh, the boss and not him. And that's why things went the way that they did all of that. So good. That whole scene as it's revealed, because first you, I don't know about you on your first watching, but when I, when I was watching this, I'm thinking, okay, they've got them like they're both in the room. But it was it wasn't set up that way initially, and I I just liked how it was then revealed like oh no Morgan Freeman's not only in the room but but taped to a chair back to back with him, and yeah. I was like that's cool. And then to have Hartnett show up exactly the way the boss did in a callback to that first scene, walking down those stairs talking about the schmoo, I was like that that's that's pretty good 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 move movie, yeah you've you've done it again. Um, <laughs> And it was, and that's where Slevin as a character gets serious and Hartnett. You're right. He normally doesn't quite nail or he, especially up to this point, I don't remember him nailing those types of scenes as well, but he absolutely did here. Oh, home run here. Uh, what the, um, Oh God, what is the, the reveal to, to Morgan Freeman and Kingsley that, he's the one doing this and it's there is no they i did this to you that the first time i saw that i was chills i mean that was great oh it's and it's so good because he's walking around and rabbi pulls him in he's like whatever they're paying you i'll double it and he just stares at him for a second and he says there is no they i did this and it's like ooh, okay and so then you've got and i this is where these performances really hit the high note is Hartnett nails this just angry and finally like his end goal is is right there in front of him and you've got 
Kingsley as the rabbi who once he kind of figures out and once that is revealed to him who this kid is, he's accepting of it almost. He's like, he's calm about it. No, you're right. You know, this is my fate. Like I did this to myself type of thing in a lot of ways. That that stands out. Even when they put the bags over their head, Kingsley is not struggling. Mm -hmm. Morgan Freeman is struggling. The boss is struggling, but you know, the rabbi is just sitting there. And, and like, and again, the boss, when it's revealed who Hartnett is, the boss is just confused. He doesn't understand what's going on. And part of that is he still thinks that Slevin is Nick. To this mm. point, he has had nothing tell him other than Hartnett tried a couple of times, but then gave up. He still thinks this guy is Nick. Whereas Rabbi knows that he's not Nick. And Rabbi knows from the that beginning. Knew from the yeah. beginning. Yep. Even he that knew. scene with, with Bruce Willis, he said, like, I know this kid isn't lying. Yeah. So it's just the it's it's interesting the way like he played them both against each other, but in different ways, and then their reactions are exactly who those characters would be, because here's the boss just lost. He's like, Wait, no, hold on, you're who? What's going on? That's not possible. You the kid is dead. He was killed by, you know, whatever this that and the other thing and then the bag gets put over his head and he's going to keep fighting and keep struggling and the rabbi being a rabbi and also kind of knowing what he knew going into that scene just accepts it and then he you know uh slevin puts the bags over their heads which calls back to what happened to his dad and then that it stayed on that shot for so long and it was hard to watch i won't lie like it was uncomfortable that just shot of well, especially Kingsley. Morgan Freeman, because well, see, to me it was it was worse watching Freeman because he was the one struggling. Kingsley was just kind of there, and the bag moved a little bit. But Morgan Freeman, the boss, he's like struggling for air, so that bag is popping yeah. back and forth, and that was what was hard to watch. It's like, oh, yeah, and and it just it lingered on there, and it kept you as an audience member. It kept you in that moment, and then we went away from it, and we came back to it. We didn't need to come back to them in the in the in those chairs, but we did. And, and my note was like, "And we go back. Come on, like movie, give me a break here." But <laughs> but at the same time, it's such a big payoff for Slevin that you sort of almost need that in a way. Um, but it's just, oh man, that's it's really really well done. It's such a powerful scene, but it's tough. It's a tough one to watch because they don't. It's uncompromising, I think is what I would say. Um, yes. a, a lesser movie or obviously something that wasn't R-rated um, would, would cut away from that quicker. But this movie was like, no, you're going to stay here in this moment for a minute and, and like dwell on this because these are bad men getting something that they, they did to themselves and they deserve to have happen to them as the, what the movie is trying to tell you. Yeah, well, um, for sure, because the first time, you know, you're watching it and you see what happened to his dad and you're like, at least for me, it was like, that's such an overreaction. Like, I get the, really? the justifications they gave in film. Like, I get it. They want to set an example you were betting on. A, but that is mm-hmm. just, that is an oh, overreaction. Yeah. In fact, I think my my note um, in the beginning of the movie was like, well, they found him really quick and this seems like a lot for one bet. <laughs> Before I remembered, because it's been a while since I watched this. I watched it this morning as a refresher, and it's been years before then. 
So I forgot how they revealed everything to you. So I'm I'm making notes as well. And when they meet him in the parking lot, I'm like, they gave him like zero time to pay this thing. Like literally, it's been two minutes. Yeah. It's the 70s. He doesn't have a debit card. He's got to go to the bank. Like Right. The horse that died on the track is still warm. Like, <laughs> come on. These guys did not wait. And, you know, I was also, at the beginning of the movie, we have um, the character Nick. We don't know his Nick. Get killed by Bruce Willis. And I'm waiting the entire movie like, okay, who is this guy? Is he is he Nick? Is that who this is? Are they going to finally reveal that? Are we going to find out who he is at all? And then they did. And so I was like, okay, all right. I'm glad they did that. But you, like, you that, find out, but it's so it's like, he's just some loser that was in both books. Yeah. Yeah. Literally just, I mean, uh, the unlucky dude, uh, owing money to, to the wrong people. And it came back to get him, you know, he, and he might not have even been that bad of a person. He just had a gambling problem, but we, well, the they movie did say he had a rest. He had an arrest for, um, underage with a cheerleader underage mm. hooking up with a cheerleader that's right so he was did. not a great person okay well you know what then it's i'm not going to say he deserved what happened to him but at the same time i'm not going to feel remorse for that character because right. they gave us a reason to not let to for him to be a bad person okay. and it's worth pointing out to your original point slevin and um good cat did not know that they just knew he was a guy who owed both books yeah yeah well they didn't care though like no. His Slevin Slevin's thing was he was going to get his revenge whatever way he had to. Um, it is a pretty genius plan to take the books and find a third party that you're pretty sure neither one of them have ever seen before. They just know a name in a book mm-hmm. and use that as a way to get in. Um, I think was was pretty smart. Uh, like there, there's that's the clever. Like clever was a word that I used a lot in my notes while I was watching this. It was like this movie's clever. Um, and it's really trying to do those kinds of things and it, and it's doing them, I think pretty well, like I'm a sucker for this type of movie anyway. Um, I love smoke and aces. I love confidence. I love oceans 11. I love con movies in general. And I like Guy Ritchie Tarantino style kind of gangster movies. And this is those two mashed together. It's a con inside of a gangster movie with a revenge plot thrown in. So that, you know, sprinkle a little payback on there, uh, minus, uh, Mel Gibson. The little kiss, uh, kiss, bang, bang. Yep. And, uh, and it makes for, you know, uh, I think a very enjoyable, um, if dark movie. Now you have to like dark movies for that. I will preface that, but, um, it's, it's good at being that type of movie, I think. And I do think more people should see this. It's kind of a bummer that it's not as well known, um, because uh, it's just, it's kind of cool. And like even going halfway through the movie before they reveal his full name. And now you're like, wait a minute, what's that name? You know, uh, Slevin Calavra. And I, can I tell you, I'm disappointed in myself because I, I thought I researched it and found that out before I rewatched the movie and realized they gave it to you. The, oh, the name Clever was bad, the... bad dog. Yeah. Um, I, 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 again, that's, that's good. And because you don't know about, um, the cat or good cat until halfway through the movie. And then you get Calavra. And if you know Hebrew, you know that it's bad dog, but why would you think that necessarily? Like I don't. Uh, so it sailed over my head at first, but I'm like, there's, there's a, that's important. Like at the same time, I didn't know why it was important, but I knew there was something to that name because he hadn't given a full name until then. 
Um, right. So I just, you know, that kind of stuff for me, just it, it tickles my fancy. I like that. I like that kind of stuff in movies. Um, and then you just add on these great performances and the music, the music and the sound is so good throughout the entire movie. Like we yeah, touched I, a little bit on I had that note too, just literally the note just says sound is great. Like the, mm-hmm. all the, the music, the orchestrated, like it's, it's really well put together. Like that first I'm kind of surprised. I'm kind of surprised it didn't win awards for, for editing. I'm be honest for sound editing. I wish it, and you know, it should have because it sounds great. It's got that very stylistic look and the music, like that flute song that's playing in the long shot in the uh, airport or bus terminal or wherever, when uh, Nick, we find out is Nick, but when the guy's walking into frame and it's that long shot, which I'm also a sucker for a long shot. And it's just him and he's slowly coming into frame. He's getting closer and closer and closer. And you see the woman, you know, the, the old lady sleeping. Um, but that's just a flute going for a while. Mm-hmm. And then as he gets closer and the subject gets larger in the frame, then the music swells and becomes more and there's more to it. And then the scene takes over. I like that stuff is great. And, uh, and I think that um, who did the music for this uh, was Jay Ralph, who, I don't know at all. Uh, that name does not ring a bell whatsoever. No, but we but, should know um, him more because <laughs> we should, because he's done some good stuff. Um, no, he hasn't done music department since uh, another Paul movie. Film stars don't die in Liverpool. Interesting. That was the last I one. I can't he, say I've heard the, of that one. <laughs> no, this was like his first. Uh, this was his first film as a music score um, producer and composer um he had done one film prior to this which i don't know eyes beyond seeing but basically this was his first film and i thought he did a great job i'm with you i think should have at least gotten this should have i feel like this movie should have reviewed better than it did and i think i wonder how much of that is it was 2006 and sort of the early to mid 2000s we had a lot of this type of movie out there guy Ritchie, tarantino uh joe carnahan you know we're all making this movie steven soderbergh and so i wonder if some of the critics were just kind of burnt out on that expecting something different uh bringing some of that baggage into it and then because a lot of like the critics, the consensus was either uh, was the the whole idea of it being trying to be too smart, which maybe, but it's not doing it in a try hard way. And I do think that there's there's like it just felt like every review I read, all of their talk their talking points of what was bad about the movie, I was like, no, that's what makes the movie work. You know, it's the quirky dialogue. It's the this this is where we were agree like said I percent agreement you know we're gonna put a is it good writing back but whatever but we see it and we're going no no first thing I said when you asked me about the movie is everything the critics said is true but it's a great movie despite that despite don't listen to them saying it's a bad movie it's true but it's still a great movie mm-hmm. critics have a real hard time with what I used to call guy flicks it's not really inclusive and we should probably think of a different way of putting it. But, you know, just good, fun action flicks. And critics always have problems with it. And I'm like, just st- it doesn't have to be an art film. No, and, and I think, you know, there's 
there's dumb action movies and there's good art films and there's everything in between and there's room for all of that. What you know, it I don't love like an example for me would be everything after that Michael Bay did after the first Transformers is just kind of rehashing that first Transformers movie. And even the first Transformers movie isn't a great film, but it it does what it was designed to do. Um and the problem was he then made it like four more times and never really iterated on it. But, but there's a place for those kinds of movies. There's a place for that kind of dumb action movie, the Michael Bay style or the fast and furious type movies where they're just like physics be damned. We're going to do something cause it looks cool and it might not work for you. It might not work for everybody, but it's kind of fun. It's fun sometimes to watch a movie where you can just shut your brain off and watch. Yes. And see some spectacle. See a couple of giant robots turn into, you know, a truck turn into a giant robot and fight a, a plane that turns into a giant robot. And then they fist fight on an overpass. I, I'm i sorry. I can't think of Michael Bay without going back to the um, the robot chicken with Michael Bay explosions. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, look, he's been doing that for how long now and to varying degrees of success. But, like, the guy can make he can make some compelling visuals like, Oh yeah. Go back and I, you I mean, about the first transformer. That's, that's what you wanted was explosions and compelling huge. These are compelling visuals. Like, yeah, he hit it. That's, that's, that's what he was hired for. That's what he did. Yeah. And then you can turn around and you can have, uh, you know, you can also watch something like, uh, um, an example of something I saw recently was, uh, some David Lynch stuff like Mulholland drive or Eraserhead, where it's the polar opposite of that in terms of like, it's not trying, it's not even, Eraserhead's not even trying to tell a cohesive story. It's just sort of a bunch of images of weirdness going on. But there's something intriguing about that and can draw you in. And again, that's not necessarily everybody's cup of tea. Um, but if you can kind of put yourself in the mindset to to watch something like that, it can be very enjoyable or very interesting experience. And I feel like you can have both ends of that spectrum. And I think the problem is that too many critics try to fit everything into, is this good or bad? And you can have well, bad that's enjoyable. Just don't be boring, I think, is the biggest thing for me. They seem to have a trouble doing something that we, not, not we as people, like regular, like not critic, do, which is, okay, a good example of this is, I think um, Lady Gaga is very talented. I don't like Lady Gaga's music. I don't like it. Mm -hmm. But if you That's ask fair. me if it was a talented person, absolutely. She's got she's got massive talent. So why, you know, I wish you would see critics do something like that more where they look at a movie like, was it a good movie? Yes. Did I enjoy it? No. If you're looking for, did I enjoy it? And that's what you want to base your experience on. I didn't like it. But let me tell you why it's still a good movie. It, I wish you would see more of that. And that that's really what criticism should be. It should be about looking at a thing for the merits of the thing that it is and not so much of, well, I didn't enjoy that. So that makes it bad because I don't enjoy the room as an example. I think that that movie, I, I have seen it in the, uh, in the theater at a midnight showing with everybody throwing spoons at the screen and doing all of the, the interactive things. But I still just can't get past the fact that that movie just bores me to tears and it's only watchable in that situation. And, and even then just barely, but I know other people that just love that stuff and love watching that kind of schlock. 
and that's fine. Like it's, it's good. It's good for you. It's good to find those outlets that work for you because I don't think everybody needs to enjoy the same things. There are certain movies and, or certain music or TV shows or whatever that can be virtually universally enjoyed or derided, but you know, at the same time, like somebody's going to find something enjoyable that I don't, or I'm going to find something enjoyable that somebody else doesn't. Um, and that's fine. Like there's nothing wrong with that. And I just think that film critics or music critics could learn a lot from just sort of taking that into perspective and being like, all right, subjectively, um, like for instance, I saw a movie years and years ago called man bites dog. I don't know if you've ever heard of that or not, but it's sort of, it's a French or Belgian film and it's, it's done in a fake documentary style and it is shot in black and white and it's about a documentarian and they follow this guy who's a serial killer and it's I don't recommend it to anyone in terms of like I'm not going to tell you to go out and watch this movie okay because by the end of it I got done watching it and my friend and I that watched it still to this day if we bring up that movie we're just like what were we thinking with that movie like by the end of it I wanted to go home and take like four or five showers and just wash the movie off of me. But the but the effect that it had on me, I also don't ever want to not know, if that makes sense. That's, that's where, like, art, it moved me as a piece of art, but I did not like it. I did not enjoy it. It was not a fun experience, but it elicited an emotional response out of me. Mm-hmm. And I do think that movies can do that. And at the same time, you can go the flip side of it, which is, this movie did not elicit an emotional response from me, but uh, other than yeah, that was fun. Like I, I want that sometimes. I just want kind of yeah. a dumb, fun movie. So you know, uh, and 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 I just enjoy the fact that movies like this can exist, where it's just trying to have fun. It's in in a dark way, but it just wants to be like fun, stylistic we're going to go crazy with like the flowered wallpaper and all this kind of stuff and just go for it. Like the movie just, just goes. And I like, I love that. I wish you would see more of these movies, these mid budget, they were real popular late nineties, early two thousands. And they went away, not a crazy high budget, but fun, little actiony little. I wish we'd see more of them and they don't do it anymore. And it's sad. I do too. You know, one that um, I saw not that long ago was uh, no escape with Ray Liotta which was a mid nineties, mid budget action movie. That is, I both remember seeing it as a kid and then listening to your episode. So I, yeah. And it's, it's like that kind of movie doesn't, uh, doesn't, and it doesn't get theatrical anymore. Some of those are starting to happen a little bit, but they're like direct to streaming. But even a lot of those direct to streaming movies are turning out to be like uh, extraction or something where it's just super high budget. And I do miss, I miss this. This was a movie made for $27 million, Lucky Number 11. And um, I looked at other movies way, from made its budget. It made its money back. It did. It did. It, it had to go, uh, it made about $53 million internationally. So, you know, they didn't spend a ton on marketing. So it was profitable, uh, but it wasn't like a big blockbuster. It wasn't a $100 million movie or anything like that. But it was it was good enough and you could have, I mean, smoke and aces got a sequel for crying out loud. And that was the same type of movie. So I just feel like, but I I do, I miss this, which is why I think I've enjoyed bullet train 
as much as I did because it really brought me back to this feeling of this kind of movie. That wasn't a huge budget. It was a bigger budget than this, but it was that same type of thing that just like you don't get to see as much anymore of like a nice ensemble to... cast. Go ahead. I was, I was about to see if we could hope for a sequel. And then I just realized that it was, it was production. It was the Weinstein company production wise. So yeah. I'm, yeah. I don't know that we're going to see unless they sell the rights. Probably not. Not the way, uh, not the way he is. I was like, who released this movie? Let me go look. Oh, wine <laughs> scenes. Great. <laughs> yeah. Um, I do have a couple of clips that I want to play because this movie has a lot of good quotes to it. Um, I didn't capture all of them, but I had to get some of these. First of all, if you're, if you haven't seen it yet, or you're trying to remember what a Kansas city shuffle is, Bruce Willis tells you exactly what it is at the beginning of the movie. What's a Kansas city shuffle. Kansas city shuffle. is when everybody looks right. You go left. I love his delivery there. It's so like laid back isn't the right word for it. It's almost lazy in the delivery, but there's something about the way he says it. Laid back controlled. So somehow it's both. Yeah. So that was really good. Um, We didn't even mention him earlier. Danny Aiello has a small part in this movie. Like I know Hudson Hawk. I love Hudson Hawk. And I wish they had shared a scene together just as a little quick. That would have been really cool. But, but how great is like the cast of this movie. And then you can throw in Danny Aiello and Robert Forrester in nearly like blink and you'll miss it cameos. And, and it's perfect. And Danny Aiello, two lines from him were just great, which is when he's explaining the money and I didn't capture the whole thing, but he's talking about the juice. And then he tells him Mm -hmm. if he loses the bet, what he'll owe. And I just love this delivery. You're all in for 22 grand, 20 for the bet, two for the juice. Like that's, again, that's clever, good writing. Yeah. And using that lingo. Can you pay these monies? I am keeping (laughs) that. That is going on my soundboard because I love that. I like, I heard that and I immediately rewound and said, I'm capturing that one. Um, and we got a couple Morgan Freemans, uh, which I mentioned earlier that, you know, Ben Kingsley got a lot of the really good lines, but Morgan Freeman got some good ones too. Um, I really like this. And again, you've had Josh Hartnett. He's in a towel this whole time, mind you trying to tell him I'm not who you think I am, but they get, they start playing the pronoun game where he's like, well, what am I here for? What do you think you're here for? Well, I don't know. Well, what am I here for? Well, what if you owed me $96,000? Do I, I don't know. Do you know? Do I like <laughs> they're doing that change. thing? It's so good. But uh, when, when he tells him that he wants him to kill the rabbi's son and he's like, don't you have people professionals that do that? Like, I'm just a guy. And his response is, but you owe me $96,000. Why should I go out and pay someone else when I've already paid you? And I liked that. I'm like, oh, that's a good point. All right. Okay. Um, and then, and again, this was a fun reveal because we saw the guy get shot in the beginning of the movie going to his car. Um, and then when he says, well, can we go see the bookie slim? And he's like, Ever since somebody shot him, old Slim went deaf. <laughs> that whole reveal is great. He's like, Slim, do you recognize this guy? And he's tapping on the glass, Slim. And, it, and if you haven't seen the movie, it's great because they're they're behind the camera's behind Slim, so you don't even necessarily see him first. 
just the mm-hmm. freezer window and yeah. then it backs up and you see slim is a dead guy from the beginning yep every, every ever since somebody shot him he's gone deaf um and then this last one from morgan freeman i need you to make it look like it ain't what it is i like that i just like it make it look like it ain't what it is also morgan freeman's voice man i'll tell you what it's the voice of uh, um i mentioned dorian missick earlier uh who i when I was watching the movie, I've seen him in a bunch of stuff. He's a character actor, shows up in a lot. But he played um, uh, a character named Cockroach in um, uh, Luke Cage, uh, the series. And I loved him in that because he's just this street tough who's like doesn't care about anybody type of thing. Um, so that's what I remembered him from. But he's got that great moment where he's trying to tell Slevin about orders. And, he just, and it's the way he says, Orders. Is orders. Orders is orders. And he's like, no one ever taught you not to use the word to d- define the word that you're defining. <laughs> oh, some of the, the funniest moments is that, that first few scenes where, where he's still playing the the, 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 the straight man, like, oh God, his yeah. lines are the best. This. Just getting it. Uh, I'll break your nose. My nose has already been broken smash cut more blood just underneath his nose it's been broken again oh um i got a couple of josh hartnett uh lines as slevin this one is just this is a line that only exists in a movie like no no person is thinking this up on the fly but a writer is and then they're like they're putting the period at the end of the sentence and they're like i just wrote me a clever line and it's this one I'm going to say what any man with two penises would say when his tailor asks him if he dresses to the right or to the left. What's that? Yes. Like, I was trying to think of that line when we came up, we were talking about that part of the movie and I couldn't remember it. So I just passed on it. That's yes. <laughs> when he, when, when, uh, what's the, um, Jason, uh, Smilovich, I believe is how you would pronounce that. The writer wrote that line. I, I know, I just have this feeling like he wrote that and he was just, he sat back for a second and kind of smiled to himself like, oh yeah, that's good. Because not only that, clever. he texted or messaged or emailed or whatever you were doing back in the early 2000s to all his writer friends and yeah. they all did the same thing. They're like, oh, that is a great line. Yep. Just give that, it's that, uh, you know, somebody else reads it and they just look up and they just give the the smile and the nod like, mm-hmm, good work. Um, but then, okay. And now here's another clever line where they're talking about James Bond, specifically when they're talking about Blofeld. And uh, it's, it's again, it's a moment that in retrospect gives you a lot of information about Hartnett's character. But in the moment, it just sounds like a, a, a goofball when he's talking about Blofeld and his favorite version. And she says, but you didn't even see him in the movie. And he's like, that's when the villain is most effective when you don't know what he looks like. <laughs> pretty good it's when the villain and that's what he's doing they they he's the villain to the boss and the rabbi and they don't know what he looks like very good and hiding and hiding that behind the soft piano too so you don't even think like that yep yeah exactly there was another case of the music is very like romantic comedy music and it's a romantic comedy moment as they're walking down the street hand in hand after their dinner and when he's just set up a hit on some guy while he was in the bathroom uh, and then lied to a cop and walked away. So, like, <laughs> I love that. Um, and finally, I got some some Ben Kingsley because 
it's Ben Kingsley. Uh, the first one is called Horse. I'm pretty sure you remember this. This is where <laughs> I love the line. I love the delivery, but the accent is a little not quite there. The first time somebody calls you a horse, you punch him on the nose. The second time somebody calls you a horse, you call him a jerk. But the third time somebody calls you a horse, well, then perhaps it's time to go shopping for a saddle. But I like the line. <laughs> the line's great. It's really good. And I can, like, I don't care that the way he said foist and thoid didn't really continue on through the rest of the movie. Like, he didn't do that with other words, but I don't care. It was just, I just love that. And it's you know, time it's, to go shopping for a saddle. The accent's inconsistent, but it's not like Gabriel Byrne in Ghost Ship Bad. No, so. no, it's not that bad. Which, that one always gets me because Gabriel Byrne is really good. And he can hold accents really well. I've, I've seen him my, do it. My only theory is that it was early enough in his career that he just hadn't gotten that good yet. I don't know. Like, maybe he was just learning an American accent. That's the only thing I can think of. But he had already done, like, Mulholland... Uh, was it Mulholland Falls? And um, he had done... Uh, uh, I'm trying to give him an out. I don't know. <laughs> I think he just wasn't on set long enough. I think he was like, he's just there to get a paycheck. Um, that's but that's, that's probably sadly with uh, the horror movies. That happens a lot. <laughs> uh, this was another good one from Ben Kingsley, the Yanks. Uh, just, just because of like, th- this is, this is that scenery chewing that over the top uh, bit that he does. Hello. How about them Yanks? <laughs> I laugh so hard. At that dude. Hello. Um, and then uh, finally, and I just, I like this line. I wish it was a little bit clearer, but the writing on this one, this is one that like the two penises line, that is a, haha, I'm clever. This one is a line that gets written that genuinely is a very well done, very clever written line. Somehow it seems different. The way your car seems different when someone else is driving it. Like I just that whole thing was so good, and I love that. So that was that was some clips from the movie. Um, there's so many more that I could have done, but I, it would have taken me like four hours to watch it because I would have been stopping to rewind and record every just about every point. I didn't get any Michael T. Williamson with his giant teeth. <laughs> Still, every time <laughs> I think about I, that, and those. It's not even uh, that the lines were great from him, uh, you know, from him or the lines they gave him. It was just that visual. And you're was, right, yeah. you immediately, if you've seen Forrest Gump, you immediately go, Bubba! You, you know it's Bubba, but instead of having the big lip sticking out from the bottom of his mouth, is the whole top <laughs> half of his mouth is sticking out past his nose. It's so great. Oh, it's so good. Like, and you know, I mean, you, you know he's having a laugh at himself in that moment, too. Like, when they give him that to wear, or maybe it was his idea, who knows? But I loved it. And then he Elvis... <laughs> And then the character Elvis just rips on him the whole time. And we didn't mention um, the two bodyguards or the two um, guys that work for the rabbi um, were, uh, oh, the one um, who doesn't speak at all, the mute, the two Hasidic Jews. But the other one was um, uh, Corey Stoll, who, if you've seen Ant-Man, um, was Yellow Jacket. Uh, and... I, I just recently watched Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, and he's got a role in that movie too. And I was just like, oh, huh, look at that. And he was kind of fun. Like, they were fun characters just to have that that moment and that dynamic of uh, where they're in the car and the one guy just looks over and kind of nods. He's like, yeah? He just nods again. He's sorry he hit you. 
I just like I I wish they'd been in the movie a little bit more is my only thing. The back um, and forth just, discovering why he's not talking was great. You know, yeah. the, the slow like so he's mute. Eh, not really. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. Um yeah, Saul and uh I think it was Abe. But he's like he's mute. Well, no, not really. It's it's complicated. Well, can you tell me about it? Well, why don't you ask him? Well, he's not going to tell me. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> like that's funny. I like that. Um this is a this was a fun movie. Thank you so much for for finally getting me to watch this damn thing because it's going to be one that I'll revisit. Um because again, I'm a sucker for this type of movie. I love these movies and what I like about them too is when this style of movie is executed well, it is rewatchable because now you know it's um and I've used this analogy before and I don't remember where I read it. But it's like going and seeing a play and sitting in a different part of the auditorium where you're seeing the exact same story, but you change the angle and it's a totally different experience because with a play, everything's static. So you move around it and it, it plays out differently. And maybe you're seeing it with a different cast member or uh, something, you know, is going on. And that's what I love about seeing a movie like this a second time is now knowing everything that's going to happen you start to pick up on other stuff. You start to see little things. It's why I can still watch the usual suspects 20, 30 years later. Yeah. I, I was, that was, that's a good parallel to it. Cause it doesn't take it away. Some movies, if you know the, the twist, you know, it's you're done. Okay. Okay. I don't need to see that ever again. Mm-hmm. This one, it doesn't ruin it. it. It's still, and the humor still works after you've seen it, even though you know, it's coming. Yeah. And that's, yep. that's gotta be a testament to the writing and to their, their performances. Cause you know, the jokes are coming at this point. I own the movie on DVD. I've yeah. seen it more than times that I can count. I still laugh. Yeah, and it's that is both writing and then execution. Like you can have a well written joke, but if it isn't, isn't executed well, it might fall flat. You got to combine those two things. And that's where, you know, this is a clever script that had a director that had a very distinct vision of how he wanted to put this together and worked well with set decorators and set designers and music. And, and the performances and everything came together to make a very solid movie. Like is the movie itself award winning? No, I don't really think so. Um, but a movie like this doesn't on the have technical to be. aspects. Yes. Technically, technical I, aspects, technical yes. aspects, but as far as story, like it, no one's going to say this should be best picture or no, know, not at all. It, no. Like, uh, you know, it, it's obviously influenced by things like Pulp Fiction and Pulp Fiction did get, nominated for best picture but i think pulp fiction had different things to say um that this movie did borrow from um but so is it award-winning in that respect no but movie doesn't have to be to be enjoyable and to be rewatchable and to be quotable and all that kind of stuff and that's everything that this movie is and it's kind of a bummer that not more people have seen it it's sort of i feel the same way about um the movie and i've mentioned the title a couple times confidence with edward burns and andy garcia Mm. um because that movie came out in the wake of Ocean's Eleven. I think Confidence was like a year or two later, but it was in the wake of Ocean's Eleven. And so it just sort of got pushed under the rug and it wasn't, it wasn't advertised as, as much. And it feels like this movie sort of had felt that same fate of like, it was a mid-budget movie. They didn't put a lot into advertising and marketing it. They didn't quite know how to do that. And so not enough people saw it and the people that did really enjoyed it but the critics didn't like it. So that put a lot of people off of it. 
And it's a bummer because I think if you do watch this, you're going to find some pretty enjoyable stuff here. And it's just a fun little romp. So it's definitely like, this was a great choice, Mike. You nailed it is what I'm going to say is what I'm saying. (laughs) You, You brought something to me and you did good. And I really appreciate that. And I really had a good time and I hope that you had a good time. I, this conversation has been wonderful. Um, definitely. We're going to do this again. Uh, you're welcome back anytime because this, this was fun. I'm going to find something you haven't seen though. I'm bringing you something next time. Uh, you know, you, I almost, I didn't want to break the, the, the thread of the conversation, but I almost confess and I'll do it now. I've never seen a single John wick. Not one. I well, love Keanu Reeves. I love those kind of movies. I've never seen a single John wick movie. Not one. I am uh, actually coming up in a couple of weeks. Um, I am going to be talking about the fourth one uh, because I will finally be seeing that. Um, I have now. I will have now covered all four John Wicks. Definitely watch those. Um, watch them. Just just sit back, enjoy. They get progressively more ridiculous, and they're they're wonderful. Um, but as action sequels should, they should get progressively more ridiculous. Absolutely. Action um, sequels and comedy sequels. That's the thing. You just got to get more and more ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Yep. I mean, that, that is I how mean it goes. Um, Fast and Furious at this point, they're basically superheroes in sports cars at this juncture. That's what I hear. I am uh, I am actually going through that series for the first time myself. Um, not for this show. I'm doing it for, uh, for a different, I'm doing a YouTube series on it. And uh, I've only ever seen the first movie. I have not seen any other Fast and Furious product except for the original 2001 film. Um, I've got you beat just by a smidge in that I've seen the first three. Okay. But I think we're on like 10 now or 9 now. Yeah, or... 10, 10 just came out uh, and just hit, I think, streaming services actually. Um, some friends of mine that do, uh, Drew and Miles, who've been on this show a few times from The More You Nerd, are doing the whole franchise all summer. And so I went back to watch the first movie and talked to them about it uh, a couple weeks ago. And it was, it's been a thing I've been kicking around for a little while. So I'm finally getting into it. I'm going to watch all of them. Um, But uh, you know, I like they're dumb and I know they're dumb and I know they're going to be getting progressively dumber and I don't care because I've, I've seen some reviews and talk, talked about them and whatnot. So that's coming up. Uh, you definitely want to keep an eye on my YouTube page for when those finally start uh, going out because that's going to be fun. I can't wait to, to see the ridiculousness that is like fast seven and eight and going to space. I hear they, they take a car to space <laughs> and like, and, and, and from what I hear, it's not just a car going to space. It's like a Fiero, which is even more ridiculous because I remember the Pontiac Fiero. So you're also uh, old enough to remember Jason X. When, oh, yeah. You know, let's just put him in space. Yep. That's what you do at that point. Hey, guys, he um, just wants his machete. <laughs> oh, man. We're okay. <laughs> We're all right. Um, well, this has been a ton of fun. We're definitely going to do this again. Now, next week, I've got uh, Adam Mock uh, is coming back. He's never seen The Fisher King. Oh, and. Wow me as the Terry Gilliam nut that I am. And he is apparently a Terry Gilliam fan, but hasn't seen that one. So I'm like, all right, well, we're going to watch that. So next week, uh, Adam's coming back and we're watching the Fisher King. And I can't wait because it's Jeff Bridges. It's Robin Williams. And it's directed by Terry Gilliam. Like those are three things that I love all in the same movie. So 
uh, I can't wait to share that with someone else. Um, that's going to be a lot of fun. So that's what's coming up next week. Uh, John Wick Chapter 4 after that. I got some fun stuff. We're, we're, we're getting very close to August. And if you know this show, you know that August is Cage of Palooza in 2023. Let's just say we're going to have some fun in August with Nick Cage. So uh, you're going to want to hang out for all that. Um, I do record the show live Sunday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern time at twitch.tv slash TV's Travis. Um, and uh, the show goes out on Wednesdays in all of your podcatchers, wherever uh, you, you get your podcasts from. Uh, or you can go to tvstravis.com. You can find this show. You can find other shows that I do, links to those. Um, you'll find uh, links to merchandise and Patreon. There's a Patreon for this show in particular. And it's sort of the Patreon for everything for what I do. Um, so as little as a dollar an episode, um, and you can back the show that way, get, uh, access to those fast and furious and other videos that I'm talking about doing early. You'll get them there first. So definitely check all that out. Uh, and tvstravis.com is just the place to find everything. It's also got the link to, to YouTube, to the discord, um, which, uh, you can join the discord patron patrons have, uh, access to special levels of the discord, but the discord itself is open for anybody to come hang out in. Uh, talk movies, talk video games, tabletop gaming, whatever. We're just, you know, it's a fun place to congregate. So definitely come check that out. Uh, Mike, where can people find you and what you do? Because you said you're you're working on bringing back your show, uh, Jester's Court. So, yeah, me we, me and my spouse, we had two shows, Jester's Court and Innsmouth Rag. And about a year ago, almost now, our basically our personal lives exploded into nothing. Like, just series of events after event after event. And I'm not going to, like bringing everyone down with it it's been a long track and we're trying to get everything back and going um there's a year's worth of shows you can find me at um jester 8082 is probably the easiest way to do that and that's me on twitter twitch and instagram um you can link those shows and my coffee company if you like fresh roast coffee free roast coffee co and yeah just find me at jester 8082 awesome definitely check those out and uh, i'm looking forward to the shows getting relaunched and coming back that's always fun just to tie it, remember I said this show fits the premise of the show. So so the Jester's Court, the idea is defending things that have been unfairly shat upon by like critics or by like audiences. By so we, we try to redeem shows movies and shows and TV or um, video games that have been I like unfairly that. looked down on. I like that a lot because I do feel like there there's a place for and and I and I like the positivity of that because it's so easy to find a thing, poke fun of it. You know, I can, I can find a way to make anything look dumb and you can find the, the ways to take the, the piss out of anything really. But I think there is a certain level of work that goes into something that has been maligned and saying, no, 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 hold on. There's some, there's some merit here. There's some good stuff. Check this out. L- look at here, look at this. And so I like that you do that lifting stuff up. Uh, is a cool idea. So Jester's Court and that's, The inspiration just... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. I was no, just going to say, no. the inspiration was watching Star Wars with my daughter. Um, the new Star Wars trilogy, or the the sequel trilogies, and everyone okay. hates them, and I watched it with my kid. My kid loved it, and that was kind of the big... That's what brought it on. So anyway, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. <laughs> no, no, you're fine. So definitely uh, Jester8082, any of the socials, check them out. That's Mike. And uh, the Jester's Court pod uh, should be coming back sometime soon. So thank you so much for being here, Mike. This was a lot of fun. Um, and no, we'll thank definitely, you for having me, man. Absolutely. We'll, we'll do it again uh, for sure. So until next week and the Fisher King with Adam Mock, um, just remember to enjoy your movies. And hey, everybody, be excellent to each other. 
has been weight you haven't seen. Jesus. Fuck shit, Jesus is right. Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>